As we pick up our study once again today, we find ourselves back in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's been a few weeks since we were here last, but once again, we find ourselves in somewhat of the home stretch. We've got a few weeks to go, but still, it's good to be back in Ecclesiastes. At least, I hope you feel the same way after today. We'll see. We do find ourselves in a particularly challenging discussion, one that is certainly relevant to all that is going on in our nation today, for we find ourselves in the midst of a discussion of the Christians' responsibility under their government. Certainly one that takes up a lot of time and discussion online and in person these days. And one that I hope is ultimately an encouragement to all of us today. As we get started, I ask that you open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and stand with me as we'll begin our time by reading our text, Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 through 9. Ecclesiastes 8. 1 through 9. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to, every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As we begin, I want to start with a question that, that might not immediately seem relevant to the text, but I think it's a good one to think through anyway. That question is, is that if I were to ask you to think through your favorite teacher, you ever sat under, whether it be school or any other setting, your favorite teacher, who comes to mind? Not looking for an audible response here, but but just think through it. Some of you who are junior in high school might be struggling to come up with a teacher that you love a lot, but just try hard. All of us probably have a certain individual or maybe a collection of, of teachers that stands out in our minds. And while I do not know, of course, which teacher stands out the most to you, I can guess that that if we were to talk about why those teachers are remembered, why those teachers stand out, a lot of us would would speak of similar characteristics. We remember those teachers partially because of what they knew. That is to say, a great teacher knows their stuff. They have a lot of knowledge. But but that's not why we typically remember them, is it? We remember those teachers that, that go beyond just a mere intellectual understanding of the content they're presenting. Teachers we remember have an ability to, to communicate it in a unique a manner that, that inspires passion in their students. The great teachers are those who are able to connect with their students in a way that, that demonstrates and communicates a sense of compassion, of care and concern for their students. The teachers we remember do far more than just communicate information. They inspire. They speak of, of love and grace. They are warm individuals. And it's because of those those separate characteristics that we will always remember them. In my own life, I can think of a number of teachers that fall in this category. There were certainly those teachers that seemed annoyed by my presence at times, and perhaps they were right to to feel that way. 
But I had other teachers that, that communicated such a caring concern for me. I think of Miss Jutris in the second grade. I think of Miss Calcote in the fifth grade. I, I think later on to college professors like uh, Dr. Ray and, and most recently in seminary. I can think through professors like Dr. Ware, someone who actually will be speaking here. I know Dr. Ware as a seminary professor was one of those professors that was so passionate with every word that came from his mouth. Every single lecture was, was exhilarating. It was challenging. He was not the easiest professor. That is to say, it was difficult to get a good grade in his class. But he was incredible at what he did. In fact, he was one of the main reasons why I went to Southern Seminary because I heard him teach at a church and I thought, I, I want to sit under that guy more. I want to hear that man speak more about God. Many of us have had those experiences under certain teachers, and as a result, we all understand the fact that when it comes to teaching, there is more to it than just intellectual knowledge. There is a necessary character that goes with it. I say all of this because as we come into the book of Ecclesiastes, we can see the same thing when it comes to wisdom. That is to say, the aim of Solomon is never just to impart facts to us. Factual knowledge is not enough to live out our Christian life. No, Solomon is seeking to impart wisdom, which is far more challenging, far more nuanced. Because wisdom requires not just that we have this head knowledge, but there's a warmth that goes with it. There's compassion. There is, as we will see this morning, a certain beauty that comes to those who are truly wise. Now, wisdom is vitally important in addressing any complicated issue, but in the midst of our own cultural climate, there is perhaps no issue that requires more wisdom than that which we are discussing today, this discussion of the government and what our role is as believers. We live in a day and age in which this, this discussion immediately feels thorny. It seems like something that we would not want to talk about. What I hope we see in the words of Solomon is that it doesn't need to be that thorny. In fact, I think what we see in Solomon is it doesn't even need to be that complex. The word of God is, is quite clear in its command. And if we are humble as we enter the text, what I hope we see is, is that the wisdom that Solomon is, is imparting to us, the calling we have is, is a wisdom that is truly beautiful. It is encouraging, it is precious, and, and even in a thorny issue like this, it's truly encouraging. And it's something that is within all of our grasp as believers. And so as we look at it today, we'll be speaking not just of, of what our role is, that is to say the command, we'll also be speaking to that character of beauty. We'll be speaking to that spirit of humility. And in so doing, I pray that all of us might walk out of this morning a bit wiser and a bit more ready to engage in the conversation that will sound so much different if we engage it according to the word of God. With that being said, let me go and begin our time in a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing to be upon us. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, as we enter into Ecclesiastes 8, we enter into a topic that is currently being hotly debated across our nation. And as we enter into this discussion, we understand that, that even within this room, there are a great number of differing opinions on this issue. And so it has great potential to present and cause even more division amongst us. But I pray that's not the end result of this morning. As we examine the words of Solomon, might we be struck by the beauty of his words? Might we be reminded of the beauty of your word, the beauty of true wisdom? God, might we be reminded of the fact that our calling as believers, while at times 
complicated by the difficulties of this life. And it's a calling that is at its root simple and straightforward, and we thank you for that. And so, God, my prayer this morning is a prayer for unity amongst us as believers. Might we not look to this morning as an opportunity to, to win an argument, but as an opportunity to be humbled, an opportunity to look more like you, more like your son. For the unbelievers who are here this morning, I pray this is a morning in which they might see how different this discussion sounds when it comes from the mouths of believers. And in so doing, Lord, might they see a, a certain unique beauty that is found in Christianity and in Christianity alone. God, I pray for the salvation of those who are lost this morning. I pray for the sanctification for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray ultimately for your name to be glorified, for your son, Jesus Christ's name to be praised. For we know it is only through his name that we're able to gather this morning. And it is only through his work that we are saved. And it is to his praise that we pray these things this morning. Amen. As we begin our time this morning, we begin in perhaps the most unfamiliar territory when it comes to wisdom. That is this concept of the beauty of wisdom, this call to be beautiful. We find this in our opening verse of our text this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1. Follow along with me again as we enter into this discussion. Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Before entering into that thorny topic of the Christian and government. Solomon makes two very brief but but simple observations about wisdom and its nature. The first observation is the one that I think most of us would would readily accept. It is that observation in the first half of chapter 1 in which Solomon in essence is saying that wisdom is incredibly rare. Again, he asks this question, who is like the wise man? Who knows the interpretation of a matter? Solomon is not asking this question, assuming that there is no answer. He is simply stating that that this type of wisdom that is required is rare, rarely seen. And Solomon, of all people, of course, understood this very clearly, for he was the wisest person alive. He could easily look around and observe the culture around him and, and see just how foolish people tended to live. We've seen his observations throughout the book of Ecclesiastes in the first seven chapters. He's observed how frequently humanity lives as if, as if death can be avoided. He, he speaks of the fact that humanity lives as if there is nothing that lies beyond the grave. He speaks to all these injustices, all these struggles, and he says time and time again, in essence, that so few people seem to understand all of this. They're living in, in complete darkness. Solomon here isn't being overly cynical or unnecessarily critical. He's just making a basic observation. And in its observation that's picked up throughout all of Scripture, we see many writers of Scripture speak to the same point. You see it both in the Old Testament with Solomon, but also as you read in the New Testament. New Testament authors speak to this lack of wisdom frequently. In discussing the beauty of the gospel, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks of how this wisdom is lacking when it comes to interpreting the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here, this question of Paul in verse 20. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Again, Paul is not denying the fact that wisdom exists. He is just looking around him and he's saying, where is it? 
Sure, we have lots of, lots of philosophers. Sure, we have lots of teachers. But how many of them really understand the foundational truths that are necessary to understand? In Paul's context, he's speaking specifically of the gospel. But, but again, we can see how that observation can be expanded to describe our own culture today, can't we? We live in a culture today when everyone seems to believe they're an expert on everything. Right? People read one article... And suddenly they know all there is to know. And if you just would listen to them, surely they could impart that wisdom to you. They'll be happy to tell you about it on their Facebook wall where only their friends and people that agree with them will read it. Right? So it's our culture today. People insist on, on this belief that, that all of us are wise. We live in a world where, where knowledge, or at least facts, are abundant. They are never-ending. And yet still so few people really understand the, the deeper matters of life. It's because wisdom is rare, a true deep understanding of the world and of life and things pertaining to God is a rare thing to find. And so making this observation, Solomon is saying something that probably all of us would would readily nod to and say, yes, amen, Solomon, we live in a foolish world. It's the second observation, however, that I think a lot of us maybe aren't quite as familiar with. For having spoken of the fact that wisdom is is rare, he then speaks of wisdom also being beautiful and actually having the, the ability to make a person beautiful. Look there again at the end of verse 1. He says, A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. The second observation of wisdom then is not just that it is rare, but, but it's beautiful, it is attractive. And it makes the person who, possess, who possesses it attractive themselves. It makes the person who possesses it beautiful. It causes that face that was once stern to beam, to become illumined. We do not think along these lines very frequently, and yet when you read through Scripture, you see language like this described frequently of the person that, that really beholds wisdom or really beholds God's goodness and His glory. You can hear similar language in Psalm 34 describing the one who who looks upon the face of God and who understands who God is. David says this in Psalm 34, verse 4 and 5. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. The psalmist here, of course, speaks somewhat poetically, but, but still you see the same imagery. The one who looks to God is forever changed. There's something about them that is physically different. Paul picks up on the same language in Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul is describing the story of Moses beholding the face of God, Paul then circles back and speaks of how the same thing happens to us as believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, Paul says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding in a, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Throughout Scripture, we see this quality that the true biblical wisdom brings. It's a quality that changes us. It's a quality that brings joy, that, that causes us to be charming, that causes us to be winsome. And you understand this is not just poetic, for we see it on the faces of so many heroes of the faith in Scripture. You read through the book of Daniel and you see Daniel had this quality. Daniel, who stood directly opposed to leadership, was still beloved by leadership. Why? Well, there was something about him that, that showed him to be wise. It showed him to be attractive. 
I think you see the same, uh, the same idea when it comes to Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts. Stephen, of course, prior to being executed by the Jewish authorities, is described as having the face of an angel. The face of an angel. As the Jewish leaders who already despise him look upon him, they see something about him that is physically different. They see this, this purity. And I think based off what else we know of Stephen from earlier in Acts, they see this divine wisdom that is upon him. Biblically speaking, it is clear that, that what Solomon says is true, that, that wisdom truly does change us. It causes our face to beam. It causes our faces to be joyful. It causes us to be different. Speaking to this idea, the theologian Karl Barth said this. He says, The theologian who has no joy in his work is no theologian at all. Sulky faces, morose thoughts, and boring ways of speaking are intolerable in this science. Karl Barth, in essence, I think is, is echoing much of what we just said. There is an inherent joy to the gospel, an inherent beauty to the things of God. And so if we think ourselves to be wise and yet find ourselves to be regularly bitter, joyless, harsh, well, I think what we find is not just that we're immature, it's that we don't have wisdom. We live in a culture in which we think that the wise person is simply the one that speaks the loudest. It's the person who can obliterate their enemy. It's the one that can humiliate others. And if people are offended, well, so be it, because I just speak it like it is, right? There's nothing about that that's biblical. Obviously, at times, there will be moments when the gospel will offend. Of course, that happens. But brothers and sisters, if, if people see you as just a bitter, angry person, they are not seeing Christ. They're seeing a sinful person that is struggling to deal with the difficulties of this world. Now, there's something that should be different about us. Because wisdom makes us beautiful. Wisdom makes us attractive. Wisdom brings to us charm. Again, look no further to the person of Jesus Christ. Here was an individual that spoke harsh things, difficult truths, and yet the crowds continue to follow him. Obviously, eventually they fall away. But throughout much of his, his ministry, people are, are genuinely attracted to him. They love being in his presence. Why? because he's gentle it's because he cares it's because there's this this genuine sense of compassion it's because jesus face shone with the sort of glory that we see throughout all scripture regarding god but but here in ecclesiastes his face shone in the way that that solomon speaks of believers there is something truly winsome and attractive about wisdom and its practice and its gentleness and its tone the question we have to ask ourselves is are we beautiful? And truly, are we winsome in the way we discuss matters of life? Are we charming? Or are we just loud? Are we just obnoxious? This question I think it's important to ask, not just for all of us, but for me personally. It's a challenging question to ask ourselves. But it's vitally important for, as Solomon describes here and as we see throughout Scripture, that is the picture of wisdom. And if we lack that, then we can kiss any chance of, of engaging in the coming argument goodbye. For if you lose this wisdom, well, then you lose any hope you have at, at winning people over it, at reflecting the gentle face of God. 
And so as believers, before we enter into that thorny discussion of the church and government, we have to begin here with that basic appearance of wisdom, this beauty. And we must hear the call to, to be beautiful ourselves, to take seriously this calling and ask ourselves whether or not this is reflected on our faces and the tones of our voices with which we speak. And so, believer, let us strive to be beautiful in the way that wisdom makes us beautiful. As we continue in the text, of course, we immediately see why this beauty is so important. Truth be told, I wish I could have spent about 45 minutes more on that first point and said, well, we don't have time to get into the rest of the verses, so. But unfortunately, there's a lot of time left. So, hearing the call to be beautiful, let us then enter into this next part of the discussion in which we're also called to be submissive. Verses two through six, they're picking it up. Solomon says, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. As Solomon continues to discuss the role of wisdom, he enters into this discussion of the practice of wisdom. And as he says here, it's not enough to simply be beautiful or be winsome. We're also called to be submissive. Specifically, we're called to submit to those who serve in authority over us. The command could not be any clearer than than it is there in verse 2, where Solomon says, I say, keep the command of the king. It's hard to really debate the meaning of this, right? And it's pretty straightforward. Submit, be obedient. But what's important to see as Solomon explains this command is is that he gives a number of helpful reasons that, that really serve as a foundation to this command. And those reasons are both theological as well as practical in nature. And, and both of those types of reasons are still very important for us to understand today. Most importantly, of course, we have to appreciate the the theological reasons for this command. Why must we, as Solomon says, obey the king? Why must we submit to the authorities that are over us, specifically in terms of the political authorities that are over us? Well, the the main theological reason for this is, is immediately stated by Solomon when he says, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Having given this This basic command, Solomon immediately ties the king to God. The question is why? Why would Solomon do this? And regarding the specific language of an oath, there is a lot of debate as to to what oath Solomon is specifically referencing. Is he talking about an oath that perhaps servants make to their king before God? Is he talking about an oath that God makes to the king? What, What oath is he trying to reference? And truth be told, we cannot know for certain what oath Solomon describes, but the basic point behind it, I think, is pretty clear, and most commentators seem to agree upon it. The point is, is that Solomon understands that we are to submit to the king or submit to authority because their authority comes directly from God. The king is tied to God's choice, to his authority. This is something that Solomon clearly understands throughout Ecclesiastes and, and something he speaks of in Proverbs as well. 
It's not an idea that Solomon came up with on his own, for it's something that he probably picked up from his daddy, from David. For David himself understood this truth that the king is directly from God. You see this displayed in a powerful way if you turn back to the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, we have this, this fascinating story in which we find David, who is not yet king over Israel. Many of you know who David is, the man after God's own heart, famous uh, for slaying Goliath. We, we know David will eventually be the king, and, and in fact, he's remembered forever as one of Israel's greatest kings. But in 1 Samuel 24, he's not yet serving as king, which means who is there? Who, who's sitting enthroned in 1 Samuel 24? It's Saul. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. Was Saul a man after God's own heart? No. No, he was a fool. No, he was a terrible king. He blew it so very quickly. I mean, honestly, the only thing he had going for him was the fact that he was tall and attractive. Genuinely, that's the reason why the people chose him. That's it. And yet, at this part of the story, he is the one serving as king, and he is insanely jealous of David, for he understands that David is the chosen one. He sees the favor of the Lord upon him. And out of his jealousy, Saul attempts to take David's life. He is chasing him throughout the wilderness, and David, this man after God's own heart, is is forced to flee. It's the middle of that fleeing that we come to 1 Samuel 24 and find this event. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men, said to Dave, the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him, because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing or uh, this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he's the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Here is David's opportunity to finally take out this horrible king. This king that blew it in front of God, that has blown it for the people, and is now seeking to to wickedly take David's life. And so when given the opportunity, David steps forward, in essence, um, kind of goads on the, the, this, this, or attempts to um, cut off part of Saul's robe, that is to demonstrate his nearness to him. He doesn't cause any physical harm on him. He simply does this action, and yet even that physical action causes David's conscience to, to be burdened. And so as he walks away, he's clearly overwhelmed by this. And, and why is he overwhelmed? Why does he say he cannot take his life? Why does he say he cannot act in any physical way against him? It's because this is the Lord's anointed. As wicked as this king is, this is God's guy. And while I'm going to be in the future, it's not my time yet, and so we have to keep our hands off of him. Because David understood what Solomon understood, that the king's authority comes from the authority of God. And so to deny the king's authority is to challenge directly the authority of God. That was simply the way it was set up in the ancient Near East. But of course the question is, well, 
What does that have to do with us now? I mean, that's just then. This is now. Of course, as we go on throughout the rest of Scripture, we see that same theological implication really carried throughout all of, all of the Word. For even as you come to the New Testament, there is still that same understanding that the authority that is put over us is put there by God himself. One of the most famous examples of this comes from the, the pen of Paul in Romans chapter 13. Speaking to that same theological doctrine, Paul says this about the government and the Christian's role. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, he says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Again, we have to take a step back and appreciate how shocking this this statement is, right? Because again, is, is Paul speaking of a righteous king, a righteous governor over the people of God, over the church? No, where are these believers? They're in the Roman Empire. They're living under the authority of people that want them all to die. And yet Paul says they are in that spot of authority because God placed them there. It's an incredible statement because again, it'd be in any Christian's mind and any Christian's heart to want to overthrow those people. They're wicked, they're horrible, they're foolish. We should be able to just disregard whatever they say, but we are given no implications in Scripture that that is to be our disposition. No, the authority is from God. Whether that authority is in the form of a righteous king like David or in the case of the people in the New Testament, if it's someone like Nero. Whether it's the person you voted for in office or the person you despise who's sitting in office, regardless of who it is, they are there by the hand of God. And you are therefore, Christian, called very clearly to obey, to submit. That is the clear theological message to the people of God. But as Solomon describes this reasoning, of course, he he goes beyond just the mere theology, although that should be enough. But consider also the practical implications of Solomon's command. Pick it up in verse 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 once again. He says, Do not be in a hurry to leave him, that is, do not be in a hurry to leave the king and insult him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Verse 5, he who keeps a a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. See, Solomon doesn't just give uh, theological reasons why we need to submit. He also very helpfully gives practical implications, practical reasons why we should submit and obey our leaders. One of those practical reasons, as Solomon says, is you can't avoid this. It's not like your disobedience in the case of the king is suddenly going to cause the king to change his mind. So you can't change his mind simply by infuriating him, simply by disobeying him. Not only that, but if you carry on into verse 5, Solomon says that by obeying him, you can actually make things a little bit easier on yourself. Solomon, of course, is speaking of the ideal world in which obedience leads to blessing or obedience speaks to a favorable stance by the king. We Understand that's not always the case. But generally speaking, Solomon says that by simply submitting, you will make things easier for yourself. You're not called to to bring a revolution to society at every turn of the corner. You are called, Christian, to just obey. And this is hard for us. 
because our government is never perfect. It is hard for us because we see folly all around us and, and oftentimes because of the culture in which we live, we think that wisdom requires us to speak out constantly, to voice our, our frustrations and to immediately disobey. But Solomon reminds us that there are times when wisdom just needs to know to, to shut its mouth. There are times when wisdom requires us just to be quiet and, and go along with things, of course, assuming we're not required to sin. Dear believers, we must understand that since God has placed our political authorities over us, that we must act accordingly and we must submit. But of course, That still leaves the question of what does this look like in practice? What does this mean for us day to day? What does Solomon command here? And we do not have the time to to explore fully what Solomon says here, or much less what all of Scripture says about what our subjection looks like. But there are, I think, two basic points of references or two basic dispositions that we need to always keep in mind when asking ourselves what our role is as believers under our governing authorities. The first, and I think the clearest from Ecclesiastes 8, is that as believers, we must have this disposition of obedience. Meaning, that's your knee-jerk response. The government tells you to do something, your knee-jerk response is, yes, sir, right away, sir. Oh boy, that's hard, isn't it? But that's the basic reference that that we obey. We understand that they are put over over us by God's hand, and so we have this immediate disposition to do whatever we can to, to please them, to obey them. Solomon speaks to this reality in verse 2 and 3 when he says, Keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. And speaking of this language of of being quick to leave the king, Solomon is painting a picture that many of you have seen, perhaps, on, on television or in movies. You can picture a peasant walking into this grand, ornate room, and at the far end of the room is a king sitting on his throne. And so the peasant walks up humbly, quietly, gives his request before the king and and awaits the king's response. And while at times the king might graciously respond in favor, there will be times, as Solomon I think is referencing here, when the king foolishly, harshly rejects what you desire. When he declares a law that, that really does not go well with you. And in that moment you have two choices. You can offend the king by rushing out of his presence, thereby communicating a lack of respect. Or you can simply bow your head and go on with your day. And Solomon says, generally speaking, it's the latter choice that should be the disposition of of the believer. We might be frustrated, we might be annoyed, but we as believers must have this disposition of submission, of obedience. Again, we live in a culture where this runs against the very fiber of our beings, doesn't it? We live in a country that, that oftentimes can, can glorify this idea of standing up for your, for your convictions. We live in a culture currently where it seems that every hill is a hill that's worth dying on. Frequently as believers, we look to heroes of the faith, people like Martin Luther, and many of you perhaps are familiar with Luther. And so you're familiar with the story of him being brought before the the Catholic authorities and being told to recant, reject his faith. Famously, in response to that Catholic call, Martin Luther says, 
I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Oh, it's a powerful moment in history. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not Martin Luther. Maybe someday you'll be put in that unique position, but the vast majority of us never will. And thank God for that fact. Thank God for the fact that we do not have that weight standing upon us. Thank God for the fact that, that generally speaking, the command of Scripture is simple. To have this disposition of obedience. This is difficult. For again, it goes against what we naturally assume is our calling. But we understand this is the command of Scripture. And in addition to that disposition of obedience, I think it's also helpful to know that, that biblically, we should also have a disposition of grace. That is grace towards people we disagree with. This is so important when it comes to our interactions with those who are in authority over us. Because as believers, very frequently, when those in authority over us say something that we dislike, we assume that there is some nefarious, wicked scheme behind their law. We assume the absolute worst about them. But in assuming the worst, we're not really acting like Christians. We're not, we're not being gracious as the way we're told to be gracious. And assuming the worst of those who are over us in authority, we are certainly not falling in lines with the instruction of Peter that he gives in passages like 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to Peter's instruction to believers, again, who are living under Nero's rule in Rome, a man who lit Christians on fire. Speaking of that Roman authority, Nero says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves for God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Throughout scripture, we are called to more than just annoyed submission. We're called to pray for those in leadership. We're called to look for opportunities to honor them, look for opportunities to win them over, so that when the day comes in which you do disagree, you will have won the, the ability to speak with them. For they will see someone who, who, generally speaking, is willing to submit, willing to care for them, willing to do that which is gracious. And as believers, it is that gracious disposition that again should characterize us. This calling is by no means anything new. This is something that Christians, of course, have struggled with for years. For the vast majority of the church has, been, has found itself under the authority of people that, that quite frankly, dislike the church. That try to, to break the church down. And so Christians have regularly had to ask themselves, well, what is our role in this? How should we respond? One helpful source that, that helps us think through this, in my mind, is the Westminster Larger Catechism probably not your go-to source for how do we act underneath the government, I know. But Westminster Larger Catechism, question 127, asks this, what is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? In response, again, understanding that oftentimes our leaders will fail us, Westminster Catechism says, the honor which inferiors owe and all due reverence in heart and word and behavior is prayer, thanksgiving for them, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love. 
Again, believer, is, is this your disposition towards your governing authorities? Is it my disposition? Do I want to obey? Or am I looking for every opportunity to disagree? Do I genuinely pray for them or do I just pray for their removal? As believers, we're called to, to submit. We're called to do this because they are there by the hands of God. We're called to submit with grace. We're called to submit with joy. And we're called to do this again because we understand it is all in accordance with God's perfect plan for his people. Now, obviously, there is always the question of, okay, Ben, but, but when can we disobey? When can we take our stand? And it's a fair question to ask. But can we agree at least for the moment, but that's not the main point of Solomon? Can we see at least for the moment that the vast majority of scriptural references to the government are all in line with the calling to submit? Believer, that is your calling. Now, of course, there are those opportunities when the government calls you to sin, and please hear that clearly, when it calls you to sin, at which point in time you faithfully disagree, understanding that you are under the rule ultimately of the true king. And you see examples of people disobeying in Scripture. You think of the maidservants in in the story of the Exodus who do not kill newborn infants as the Pharaoh requests. You can think of Daniel who refuses to pray to an idol, who refuses to, to go along with idolatrous practices. You can think of believers in the New Testament who refuse to bow the knee before Caesar. But in all these situations, again, we're dealing with a clear command to sin, not not a command to do something that's just quite frankly a little inconvenient to us. And so, believers, if you're called to sin, by all means, stand up. And if your government is doing that which is unjust, that which is wicked, by all means, you can say something to that. But in all these things, we do so not as rebels against the government. We do so as individuals that truly want that which is best for them. We do so with love, with respect, with grace, and with joy. We do so understanding that that this is difficult. And so again, just as we ask ourselves whether or not we are beautiful, the question we have to ask is, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are we submissive? Is that our knee-jerk response to the law? Or is our knee-jerk response to try to rebel? If it is the latter, it falls out of the command that is given to us in Scripture. And so believers, just as we are called to be beautiful, we're called to submit as much as we possibly can, we are called to submit understanding that God has placed those people over us regardless of whether or not we like it. This is difficult, I understand. And there are, are so many people that no doubt would disagree with things I just said for the last few minutes. And I, I understand that. But I'm thankful for the text because as we come back to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon doesn't leave it simply with the call to be beautiful or the call to submit. He leaves it with, with perhaps the most important command of all that we're getting at today, and that is the command to be humble. Because again, this is difficult. Follow along with me in verses 7 through 9. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. There is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. 
As Solomon comes to the conclusion of this discussion, he comes to a conclusion that sounds very much like the conclusion he's drawn time and time again. And in essence, that conclusion is, I mean, what are we going to do about it, right? What's the point? And of course, there are two ways to read this. You can read the words of Solomon as, as sheer cynicism. For as he says, nothing you do will ultimately change the day of your death. That's ultimately what he's pointing to. When he speaks of changing the wind with the wind or, or avoiding evil, all these things, he's just speaking of the inevitable end of all of us. And so you can choose to read his word as cynicism. But there's also a way to, to hear the words of Solomon in a strangely encouraging manner as well. For you see, immediately there's an encouragement in the fact that that this is a difficult matter. Again, to, to go back to verse 1 when he says, who is the wise man who knows the interpretation of the matter? To jump again to verse 7 where he says, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Solomon understands that these are weighty matters. Solomon, of all people, understood that life is really difficult. And I don't know about you, but as a believer, I oftentimes wish that I had that perfect answer to any problem someone brings before me. I wish that I had some 30-second soundbite that I could just play every time someone brings one of life's difficulties and, and a response that would leave people saying, oh, wow, thanks, that solves everything. I wish that I could stand up here for 40 minutes and have us all walk away thinking, okay, now I fully understand the, gov- the, the role of the Christian under the government and I will never argue about it again. That would be great, right? But that doesn't happen And it's because these issues are more complex than that. They demand further discussion. But there is a comfort to that. There's a comfort in knowing that you and I are never going to have all the answers. There's a comfort in knowing that that these things will never work out the way we hope they work out. And so there's a comfort in acknowledging the fact that this is hard. In the same way, if you look at verse 8, there's a comfort in the fact that you can't ultimately change anything. You can't change the day you're going to die. You can't change the way the government works. You can't change the ultimate end goal of all of humanity. But believers, there is such encouragement in acknowledging our limitations. There's such encouragement in that. This might be difficult for some of you to hear, but the future of our political discourse does not depend on what you post on Facebook. Not at all. Praise God for that. The future of our nation does not, does not come down on our shoulders, the believers of Cape Bible Chapel, and whether or not we will be experts in terms of politics. No. No, we are limited, for we can never know the future, at least entirely. And yet, even in that acknowledgement, there is that unspoken encouragement that we've spoken of so many times in Ecclesiastes. Because while the cynic will hear Solomon say, who knows the end, and will in essence assume the answer is nobody, we as Christians can hear Solomon ask these questions and answer with great confidence, well, Christ does. That's the answer to all of this. Who knows the end? Christ does. Who can deliver us from this? Christ can. And so believers, in response to all these discussions, let us be humble enough to acknowledge that these things are difficult, that we live in complicated times. Let us be humble enough to acknowledge that our limitations, that maybe we aren't the smartest people in the room, that maybe the future doesn't depend upon us. And in that humility, let us acknowledge the fact that we are grateful and that we know the one true king who does know these things. 
We serve the one God who has no limitations. We serve the one God who does not see any of this as difficult. We see the one who has given us this calling and who promises us that even if we cannot fully understand it now, this is all being worked out perfectly in line with his will. That's the ultimate calling in this. And so as we close this morning, believers, as we consider this thorny issue, again, my prayer is that you might understand it's not be really all that thorny after all. Certainly not as complicated as I think a lot of believers make it. For you who are unbelievers this morning, I, I pray again that you might see the beauty that is in a text like Ecclesiastes 8. I pray that you walk away from the time this morning understanding that as Christians we are not the people that present ourselves as having all the information and all the answers to every question. We as believers understand first and foremost we are limited. We are sinful. Yes, we are being sanctified, but we do not have this all figured out. And I pray that you see a beauty in that unbeliever. I pray that you understand, just as we've seen throughout all Ecclesiastes, that everything in this life will fail you. Your favorite political leader will fail you miserably, without a doubt. It's going to happen. And so you can't place your hope in that. You must place your hope ultimately in the one who knows the end, and that is Jesus Christ. And so, unbeliever, I pray that you might come to Jesus Christ this morning. You might understand your need of him. As always, if you have questions about that, please let me know. Talk to one of our pastors. Talk to one of our elders. And as believers, let us take seriously the calling of Ecclesiastes 8. Let us pray, not just for more knowledge, but let's pray genuinely for more wisdom. Maybe we should take a few less minutes out of the day of reading the latest angry blogger and spend a few more minutes really meditating on the beauty of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, the glory of Christ. Think deeply on that, believer, and pray that as you do, God may make you more beautiful, just as the text says. Let us then... As we pray for that wisdom, practice submission. Practice obeying any time you can obey. Practice ha- developing that, that disposition of obedience, of submission, as hard as it can be. And in that process, again, let us practice also giving grace. Both to those who are ruling over us, but also and especially to the, un- to, to the believers that surround us. We disagree on this topic, and that is fine. But please be gracious to one another, be humble, knowing that we all ultimately are serving the same purpose. And so let us be beautiful, let us submit, let us practice grace, and let us do so all all the time, waiting for the return of our one true King, Jesus Christ. That being said, let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for our time this morning, God. And again, I know this is a thorny subject. And so yet again, I pray for unity. I know there are brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning who disagree on this discussion. And, and I understand, God, that in my own limitations that, that I perhaps am mistaken on some of these things. Of course, Lord, we all are. But I pray we all might be humble enough to acknowledge that. I pray we might be encouraged by the simplicity of the calling you've given us. I pray we all might echo and, and follow the example of Solomon here to, to be submissive to be proper citizens under the authority of those that you've placed over us, God. I pray that in all that we do, we might not come across simply as arrogant people wanting to win an argument, but we come across as loving, gracious, gentle servants of the true king who seek to win people over to the gospel, not simply to a political party. 
And so, God, give us unity in that calling. As always, I pray for any unbelievers here, Lord. I pray for their salvation. I pray they might be won over by that gentle calling of Jesus Christ, God. We love you, God, and we praise you. Give us wisdom in these tumultuous times, God. Give us the ability to see your hand that is still at work. We praise you, and it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.